We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Quick note and an apology before the episode this week. I did not get my microphone plugged in. Big apology on my part. It's the default computer audio from my computer. So I'm probably not going to sound as great this week. That's also an issue in the very beginning of the Thursday episode. I caught it halfway through. We'll work hard not to have that happen again. It does improve on the Thursday episode after about 15 minutes, but apologies guys. A look back at some of our teams in the main events. Some player talk on guys like Kyle Pitts and Traylon Burks and a lot more. That's what we're talking about today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find my newsletter, Stealing Signals at BenGretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his fantastic work over at Rotoviz. Sean, we did the whole Trey Lance episode on Wednesday. We talked about a lot of stuff. Uh, talked a lot about the rookie receivers. Talked about Garrett Wilson. We didn't get around to Traylon Burks. I'm excited to talk about some fun notes I have from Stealing Signals on him. We said in the intro to that show, we would talk about Kyle Pitts, and we never got around to it. We're looking forward. We're going to talk about a couple of these guys uh, that there's reason for optimism for, I think. But as we did a little bit of an accounting this week, I did a bit of an accounting right after the games on where our teams were post-Trey Lance injury to find some optimism, some things to be excited about. There's a lot of fun teams here. You don't want to spend too much time on it, but obviously listeners who were around for all the draft shows and have probably a lot of our listeners have drafted a lot of these players and want to hear us talk about our optimism for them as well. So we were thinking we might recap our our squads a little bit here after week two. Yeah, and I think that hopefully listeners are in this kind of the same boat where you can go through and you can overcome a little bit of the disappointment by looking at some of these teams that are doing really well. I was kind of blown away by some of the scores and some of the rankings. I've got a handful of FFPC best ball tournament teams with Zachary Kruger, who is a, a great best ball mind that did a lot of great best ball content this offseason with Colin Kelly, my co-host over at overtime. Those teams are doing nicely. Ben, the teams that you and I drafted in the main event, I mean, this is about the most excited that I've been through a couple of weeks just because these teams like they seem like they could be so much fun, right? We've got a team with Jalen Hurts that has Christian McCaffrey, Tyreek Hill, AJ Brown, Rashad Bateman, Drake London, Garrett Wilson. 
I mean, almost hesitate even to throw Jerry Judy in because he looks like he may not be a starter, especially if it takes him a little time to overcome that injury. Doesn't seem like it's serious, so that part is good. And then Gerald Everett, we have a team with Lamar Jackson, Jonathan Taylor, Debo, who probably does benefit from the Trey Lance injury. If there's a tiny silver lining from a fantasy perspective, maybe it's on those Debo teams. DJ Moore, he may not be a starter because we have Jalen Waddell, Bateman, Devontae Smith. I really liked what we saw from him in week two. I think his performances going forward are going to be more similar to that. And there will be some touchdowns sprinkled in. That team has both Pat Fryermuth and Gerald Everett. Those two guys, I mean, maybe the among the pretty rare hits at the tight end position through a couple of weeks, one of our Barkley Swift teams has Waddle, Deontay, London, Wilson, Smith, and has this is a kind of a, a fun one where we drafted it in a non tight end premium format. So we were able to get Hawkinson, Fryermuth, and Everett. Hawkinson disappointing through two weeks. Yeah, he's but, like three shot. Yeah, I mean, that part of it, obviously you're not looking to these guys for the flex nearly as much in non-premium, and yet with how barren the tight end position is, it just feels like such a luxury to have some depth there, both because if an injury happens at tight end, you can go to a zero very quickly, and then obviously you have buys, you have values that shift a little bit during the year we've got this team with pits that i'm pretty excited about that has deandre swift who looks like you know again one of the top two three most talented running backs in nfl manages to score big despite barely touching the ball in week two due to that ankle injury that one has pits waddle gabe davis who didn't play last week but london wilson smith and elijah moore sort of that jets double there we'll see if elijah moore can bounce back a little bit and then I also have to mention our RB heavy team, which I think is hilarious. This one has Barkley, Swift, Hall, Dobbins, but is still loaded enough at receiver that despite you know not starting all those running backs currently, we've got guys like Devontae Smith and Jahan Dotson on the bench. Yeah, those are all very fun teams. Um, I mean, you, you take away the pits element here, and, and Ben, these, I mean, these teams are hitting in a huge way. Couple, couple of those were Lance teams, and a couple of them you didn't mention the QBs. I love that you didn't mention. I think Michael Carter's on two of these teams. He's on at least one. I love that you didn't even mention Michael Carter. Like you just mentioned, like the early running backs where we had them, and then all receivers, and then what we have in tight end, which is the way that we think about our teams. But I mean, having Michael Carter, having guys like that to play helps some of these rosters. Yeah, we talk a lot, I think, about the CMC, Hill, A.J. Brown team that also has Hurts. You got the little stack going. The fun thing about all these teams is having London and Wilson, like that team, having Wilson on, on several of these rosters. The second one is a very similar build to the first, Taylor. It's got Debo and D.J. Moore, which is not quite as exciting as A.J. Brown and Tyreek Hill at the 2-3 turn. But it got Waddle in the late fourth, and it has Bateman with Lamar Jackson. So a stack there that looks amazing, just the way that the Hurts – uh, AJ Brown stack looks amazing. Those two teams are really fun to have the CMC and Taylor anchors, and then also have, you know, this QB stack that looks really good and a lot of additional pieces at receiver, a lot of depth there. Gerald Everett on both teams. He's top five tight end through a couple of weeks. And we're very excited about that and about that potentially continuing. All of these do have an early running back. We didn't do a ton of zero RB teams together. 
whole zero RB, but you could be in a really good spot at zero RB. We talked on the last show that the leader in the best ball mania per, per our buddy, Peter Overset, the leader in the best ball mania over on underdog and the leader in the FFPC main event are both zero RB teams currently through two weeks. Maybe we should have drafted a few more zero RB team, Sean, if we did anything wrong. Well, we wanted to have teams in that three, four, five, six, seven range, but we got draft picks in the one, two, which I, you could very easily make an argument that those should have been cup Jefferson teams. My projected 2023 draft had Jefferson and Chase as the top two picks. Obviously Chase, not a good week two, but I think we could have receivers at the very top next year. And then we had a lot of teams that were kind of in that Barkley Swift range. I think that's still going to work out. And yeah, all these running backs have looked good. Man, uh, the early I mean, the, when you hit on the anchor running back, the team looks a lot better when you have Swift or you have Barkley or you have both or if CMC or you have Taylor. Do you feel like these teams are, have, a, have a good route to having six of the top 15 wide receivers? That's one of our main points of emphasis and I think that London Wilson hit, and we don't know that they're going to necessarily continue at quite that rate, but I guess I have a lot of optimism for it because of what they were like as prospects and because both of these offenses have surprised to the upside. The Falcons even doing that without Kyle Pitts. Can we get six of the top 15 receivers on these teams? I think so. London and Wilson look like guys that can be that. I mean, at least for stretches, right? And so... Yeah, I mean, I think that's, as you, I'm, I'm just looking at it here, but as you said, three of these teams have both London and Wilson, and, and a little bit later, London obviously had a little bit of a higher ADP, but when you hit on both of those, you feel really good about it, and you have multiple earlier drafted receivers, you're well on your way to at least having four, potentially five top 15 receivers. I think these are the types of teams that can get there. Probably not the Barkley Swift, Hall Dobbins team, uh but you know part of the thesis there was that we're gonna actually flex running backs on one team with some some occasion i don't know if we've actually done that yet <laughs> we might have last week but dobbins has been out a couple weeks i don't know if we played a hall in week one i think we did last week potentially but we still have like you said really good receivers on that team as well so we've been playing a lot of receivers there but yeah these are fun teams for anyone who curious how our teams are doing or is checking in this is five of them i think sean we did seven together uh not too too many was it seven or was it six it's six plus the uh chasing stolen in his team all right the one with the with the ship chasers which isn't a bad team either but did have trey lance uh it has garrett wilson as well though jamar chase kyle pitt's team could be pretty darn fun still Let's talk about a few of these guys. I guess one guy that we don't have on a lot of these teams is Traylon Burks, but we do have exposure to him, or I, I know I do. We, we well, I didn't know him on all of the teams because I was trying to keep it to the the top plays. The hits, yeah. Yeah. And sure. A couple Burks. of them, we had London, Wilson, and Burks, and we were excited. We got the you know dynasty big three. We've got Sky Moore on some of these teams. We've got Jahan Dotson on some of these teams. And I, I mean – you prefer to have Dotson on all of them, maybe Sky more on none of them so far, but more someone we also expect to, especially over the second half of the season, still be a big contributor. Yeah, their receiving core hasn't looked good. MVS, I thought, looked uncompetitive, frankly, on Thursday. 
uh, is the word that I keep using. I didn't think he was running his routes particularly well. We talked in our third show of the week last week after having an opportunity to watch Thursday Night Football about that situation. And so we're still optimistic that Moore's role should grow and can grow and that there's the opportunity for him if he's a big hit to be a big, big part of their offense down the stretch. I think he's an easy, easy hold right now. People probably getting a little bit concerned might want to cut him. If he gets cut in any leagues, I think he's somebody to consider picking up and, and holding because, yeah, you're not going to start it, but there's also a lot of guys on your bench that you're not starting regardless. They're basically just insurance. I think people worry too much about the here and now, and they're saying, oh, this and that. I had you know, questions this week about super flex formats where people have two really good quarterbacks. Who do I need to get a QB3 for the bye weeks? And I'm telling them, you're starting those two quarterbacks every week until then. So, deal, you know, accept the uncertainty a little bit. You, your, your best QB three option there, whenever you get to that bye week, might not even be who you think it is now. And you go pick that guy up and you stash him. And then you get there and you wind up even cutting that player for a different QB three because some other injury happens or something opens up. Uh, somebody else in your league drops a player that at some point you want to add. So accept the uncertainty. Don't plan three, four, five weeks in advance in a way that limits the flexibility of your bench right now. Well, and, and kind of building off of that and thinking through some of these other positions, you have someone like Nelson Aguilar who looked very, very good in week two. I made a little bit of a contrarian call at the end of last week that I thought the Patriots offense was better than people were giving it credit for. They did look better against the Steelers. They ran the ball much better than in the first week. Mac Jones and one of the biggest regrets that I have, we we do have this really, really good team that in a format where the wide receiver depth is critical and ours is good with some of those late rookie hits, but someone we could have gotten even later was Jacoby Myers. He has looked, and I know, I mean, I can't get you to say Jared Goff is rosterable, but I am willing to come off of this and say Jacoby Myers looks absolutely fantastic he looks fantastic nelson aguilar also looks very good he's someone who's not generally rostered whereas myers is my point there is i wish we had taken jacoby myers he did come to us at a spot where we could have taken him nelson aguilar out there on waivers he looks good Devontae parker looks like a guy who is done at the nfl level now that could change because he doesn't have as much experience with these guys as aguilar does having played last season Aguilar looks good. He's someone who's interesting, but still probably not somebody. And we saw this a little bit with Corey Davis, where people wanted to pick him up after week one. Then he hits on the long touchdown on week two. And so you feel like, okay. But I made a little bit of a contrarian call at the end of last week, saying I thought that the Patriots offense was better slash was going to be better than people were giving it credit for, that Mac Jones had actually looked pretty decent in the first week. Part of what happened is they had a 15-play touchdown drive that sucked a lot of the overall life out of that game. They had some fluky turnovers that stopped them. Week two, I thought they looked good against the Steelers. Now, this isn't to say that they have some offensive juggernaut. It's not to say that Harris and Stevenson are going to be you know, high-end RB2s even. It doesn't mean you can play their wide receivers consistently necessarily, certainly not on the types of teams that you and I want where you have big time wide receiver scores, but I like that the way they looked, the Steelers obviously missing their defensive heart and soul, but still a good defense. Mac Jones played well, Aguilar played well, Myers looked phenomenal. They didn't get much out of the tight end position, but 
Aguilar, one of these guys who, because he scored in week two, there are going to be teams that go after him on waivers. And it's not to say that couldn't work out, but what I'm hearing you say, and, and definitely the way that I'm looking at this, even as a Nelson Aguilar fan, have a few shares at the end of best ball drafts that you want to stick with some of these stashed wide receivers who project to be potential real impact players over the second half of the year, as opposed to pivoting to guys who scored well in week two, but we have a long enough track record of them at the NFL level. And then within the context of their offenses, you're probably only going to end up kicking yourself later because you start them when they don't score. And maybe occasionally there are some big games, but overall it's a losing proposition to number one, take up the roster spot. And then secondly, to actually plug them into your starting lineup in weeks where it doesn't make sense. You could have won if you had just kind of stood with your roster as it was. Absolutely. I mean, it's the same thing we talked about, I believe it was last week with the running backs where touch about the you know expected value equation. I feel like I'm talking about it too much lately, but the probability of something hitting versus the size of the payoff, we're not looking for guys who just have roles. We're not trying to project. I mean, like so much of the fantasy content out there has then led people to think about fantasy football that way, that it's all about who has a role and who's like, I bet you this guy's going to score more points than that guy next week. And in most cases, when those are a discussion, I mean, it took me a couple of years of like having those discussions be like, no, I think this guy's going to be better. And realizing like, I'm actually making a bad bet there because more than 50% of the time, the the veteran who has the bigger role is going to score more points. But they're not going to score a lot of points. It's going to be like, you know, 12 points to eight points or something with the young guy or whoever. But what we're looking for is the player that can actually be a huge impact, can, can break out in the way that Garrett Wilson did last week. And then especially when you're talking about on your bench, you're talking about like the way to play fantasy football on your bench. Like people are way too concerned about insurance. They're way too concerned about, well, what happens next week if I have an issue and I need to play somebody? And it does suck when you get to that week and you don't have anyone to plug in and it's hard to find someone on the wire. But like that's a worst case scenario where you have some injuries and things go bad. And even then, you can probably find somebody on the wire that's not much different than what Nelson Aguilar is in terms of a range of potential outcomes. Aguilar, like you said, still has the potential to have some five-point games, maybe even right, right away next week. And some other guy you grab off the waiver wire you know, has that same kind of concern, right? And I have some leagues where I have so many of these stash sort of upside plays into the future that I don't feel like I have enough depth to plug in players. But you do want a lot of the players on your bench to be players that maybe aren't even producing right now. I mean, that sounds weird. I'm not saying you necessarily want that, but ideally every player on your team is scoring a bunch of points. But in terms of your actual allocation, you're trying to look for the size of the hit in the future. And so if a decent number of the players on your bench are those types of players. It's not It's not the worst case scenario. It's, you know, it's a scenario where your bench hasn't gone absolutely crazy and you don't have as much depth as maybe some of the teams we talked about at the top of the show. And we're talking about how we still have, you know, Jahan Dotson on the bench on some of these teams and things. And, Do- and Dotson's playing well. Like that's, that's the best case scenario to have a guy who's actually scoring on your bench. Like that's good. But if you don't have these guys that are hitting on your bench, what you do want on your bench is guys that can score at some point in the future in a way that is meaningful and impactful and so with a guy like Sky Moore, what we're talking about is a scenario where once he works into a role, which happens with a lot of rookies, takes time. We've talked about this a ton. 
Saw it with Amon Ross St. Brown last year. Saw it in A.J. Brown's rookie year. I'm not saying Sky Moore's guaranteed to be those types of players, but this is an offense that produces fantasy points and their receivers are not looking very good. And so in that scenario, when Sky Moore does start to play more, you know, run more routes, play more snaps, be out there a lot more, we're talking about a guy who's probably a consistent startable player every single week. And making sure you have enough of those types of guys helps you as the season moves along. I think that sometimes it's too easy to look at injuries and think, well, I didn't win because I got unlucky because I drafted this player in round four and round five and round six, and they got hurt and teams who do that and have their players get hurt. Don't win as opposed to looking at it as you didn't continue to load up on the types of players who can help you get across number one, those injuries, number two, the bye weeks the other important element of it is that you not only need to have those players on your bench, but you need to block your league mates from having those players on their bench as the season goes along. So when you drop those players and bring in guys who don't really make sense for a league champion type of team, then not only have you weakened your team, but you've made another team in your league stronger. And that's one of the things that we're looking at as we go through waivers over this first month, it's not just going in to see who was picked up this week. It was to see who was dropped, who was in a situation where their team, where either they weren't patient enough or the short-term need got to be so great that they had to give up on somebody who was very, very interesting. And then go in and bid the next week, not on the number one player from that week, but simply the high upside option who was dropped the previous week because someone couldn't keep stashing them. That part of it can be overlooked, but it's just as important that you can't let your league mates have those players on their rosters. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. It's a great point. Traylon Burks is another guy that might be viewed like that right now, but I want to make a case right now that his week three could look like Garrett Wilson's week two, because I think what will get missed by anyone who's looking at the full game numbers is that his role rose substantially. I think anyone who watched the game knows that he started, he got a target on the first play, he caught like a 15 yard pass or something. He got a third and 16 crosser and turned up, up field uh, to get to the six, get the first down, showed some after the catch explosiveness. And he looked like he was billed as a prospect and he looked the way he looked at Arkansas before there was all of this summer talk about the conditioning and the asthma, he looked like someone who shouldn't be that athletic for the size. I mean, it's striking when he has the ball in his hands that someone of that size moves with that much agility and then the ability to turn up and be explosive. Yeah. He looked really good. Frankly, the Titans looked terrible as a team. Burks only winds up with four catches for 47 yards on six targets which also masks that this should have been viewed, I think, as a very positive game for Traylon Burks. I think everything through two weeks should be viewed as a positive for Burks, other than the fact that the Titans as a team look terrible. Like that's and that's a pretty important fact. Like let me let me say. But in week one, I noted that both Robert Woods and Nick Westbrook Akinney ran a bunch of routes and only got two targets and didn't really look that great. In week two, we saw it again. They ran a bunch of routes and they weren't 
very effective. Robert Woods does catch four balls, but only for 39 yards. Some of them are like sort of on outlet plays. He's basically, you know, the, the check down running back on, on at least one of the plays. Burks was the, you know, alpha, as people like to say. He was the vertical X receiver running these downfield routes and looking like A.J. Brown looked in this offense. It was very clear. The Titans got blown out so bad, and then Ryan Tannehill threw the pick six that really got bad late in the third that they went to Malik Willis with a few minutes left in the third quarter. The Bills followed suit. Both teams played their backups for more than a quarter or by the end of the third. And so you wind up with numbers where Burke's snap share didn't really rise that much. His route share didn't really rise that much. Just in snaps that Ryan Tannehill played, his route share rose in terms of percentage of dropbacks up to 73%, which is a huge number for week two for him. It's a big boost from the 38% in week one. It looked like he might be a guy we might need to wait and see on, but he almost doubles from week one to week two, the percentage of his dropbacks that he's running routes on. Like I said, he made some plays. And then the other important part that I think here that has gone so well for him, other than just the other receivers not looking good in a way that has made it very clear they need to use Burks more, and they've already responded to that. And then Burks looked like that. Other than just the receiver element is that Derrick Henry has looked so bad. And I think part of that is they don't have A.J. Brown anymore. They don't have a vertical passing game that's threatening defenses. And that is something that matters in this offense. They need to be able to threaten teams with the play action and the vertical element. I don't think Mike Vrabel's a stupid coach. I think he understands that we need to get Traylon Burks going, not just because he looks like our best weapon in the receiving game and our most explosive player as a receiver, but because to run the ball, we have to have a threat down the field. And so I think that's another element where, I mean, they're going to keep giving the ball to Derrick Henry as much as they have to, but they need to do things to open up the running game because they can't just keep running Henry into loaded boxes. And again, that has to be Traylon Burks. There's like no answer to this question is there for the Titans other than getting Traylon Burks going to jumpstart every level of their offense, their passing game, their running game, everything. And that's what we talked about in the offseason. That was part of, you know, even though there was all this negative stuff on Burks, part of the idea was they don't have anything else in terms of what can threaten defenses in the passing game to keep Burks off the field. I think we just saw it in week two, but the Titans were so bad that it didn't show up on his stat sheet. It didn't show up in his routes. I don't know that he's going to have 30-point games like Garrett Wilson just did in this offense, but I do think Traylon Burks having a 20-point game in week three is not, not hard to see. And even though the Titans have been bad, I think the thing you have to be very mildly, very mildly optimistic about is that Ryan Tannehill is still in a lot different situation than, say, Matt Ryan. And Tannehill's numbers with the Titans have been fantastic, in part because he's throwing against these boxes that are set to stop Derrick Henry. And Henry is still there. And in all likelihood, is still pretty close to what he was. So if you do get the passing element going a little bit, this offense could turn around. You mentioned the complete lack of other weapons. I don't think in the wide receiver room, that's a huge surprise. I'm sure that the Titans are a little bit disappointed that Austin Hooper looks like he looked with the Cleveland Browns, which is someone who essentially can't make any impact on an offense. And so it has to be Burks. The fact that Woods has had so little impact through two games where I, I we mentioned from time to time that there are these very context specific types of 
fantasy plays that do work sometimes. So if your thesis for Robert Woods is that, I mean, he's an okay veteran player and the Titans have nothing and Traylon Burks had a poor off season. And so Woods is going to have to be a volume play. You could understand that thesis and it wouldn't have been a shock if it had played out, but it's also not the play that we like to make for the reasons that we articulate pretty consistently And in this case, it's not playing out. And so that opens up to Burks to be number one, the talent guy, and then number two, also the person that the volume has to flow through. I think this offense with Henry and Burks can be fun. And I think that you have to get those offers out to acquire Burks in almost every format. This is probably your last chance. And I think the people who drafted Burks in the first place, many of them had him ranked really high. I mean, you think about dynasty. I mean, Burks was the Debbie guy in this class for a long time and Debbie players tend to be very good with player evaluation and they tend to be able to withstand some of the short-term stuff that maybe redraft managers, you know, are not as soaked in the backgrounds of these prospects and maybe you're going to come off of them pretty quickly. I mean, if you've had Burks for multiple years as a college guy, you saw what he did last year. I mean, you're not going to come off of him because he has some conditioning issues in camp and the Titans will look bad in two games. But in some more straightforward dynasty formats, if you drafted at a time period where Burks is still going ahead of Wilson and you're frustrated by that, you know, maybe you can get Burks for a DJ Moore and maybe you should. So that'd be an interesting question to ask you. Obviously, DJ Moore, one of your favorites. I'm making the case in a dynasty wide receiver rankings piece that should be out by the time people are listening to the show that some of the biggest risk wide receivers in dynasty are guys who actually do have very high talent levels, but have some uncertainty at the QB position that will extend out not just now, but probably for multiple years And that a misunderstanding of what you might consider the peak for players combined with a misunderstanding of the way trade values move, have players in this DK Metcalf, DJ Moore, Deontay Johnson, even though we do have some optimism for him, players in that age range, talent range, and quarterback situation are maybe still a little bit overvalued in Dynasty. Now, it doesn't mean that you can buy as much for DJ more now as you could two weeks ago. <laughs> People have seen Baker Mayfield play with the Carolina Panthers. What's your level of concern for some of those guys? And I always think it's interesting to ask people where they are on two players they obviously like and, and what they would be looking to do in that situation. Well, I refuse to say anything negative about DJ Moore, and you're wrong. So let's just move on. <laughs> um We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, 
So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I kind of I said that in Stealing Signals this week that I could see him being a sell, even like a little bit of a sell low, but I would never actually recommend that because I'm hopelessly in the tank for DJ Moore. That was the most depressing thing that you said to me in a while there, Sean, because you're right. And you talked to me a little bit about this concept before we started recording. I didn't realize you were going to drop DJ Moore on me or on, on me as, as a poster boy for the concept. But the guy that I told you or gave you back – as a good example that I thought of for the point you're trying to make, I think is, uh, is Allen Robinson, who for years we stayed very optimistic about because he hadn't played with a good quarterback yet and essentially just missed the window. And now we're all saying, it's just really kind of sad that Allen Robinson in his prime never played with a good quarterback, but you know, even late in his Jaguars years. And then when he goes to the bears and has a good Bears season, there's a lot of points where his dynasty value was still very high because he's still young enough and he's still got his peak ahead of him and all of those things. And yet, if you go back to those points in his career and you ask the people who acquired him at those points, whether they are comfortable with that decision, given the way his career played out, I think most of them would say, given what they probably paid, that they were not, that he didn't do a lot to help them win championships in those years and whatever future picks they paid and all those things panned out pretty negatively for them in the sense that they could have used those picks or used the, the potential players, young players, new you know, assets and opportunities and dynasty that could have been available to them. And so what your point is with DJ Moore and, and DK Metcalf and Deontay Johnson is if they're not in a great situation right now, and we're kind of saying, well, the DJ Moore year's coming, which is kind of the point that I've kept saying. What you're sort of saying is the DJ Moore season may never come, the year where everything is actually right for him, or if it does come, then it might be too late from a talent perspective for him. It's really great that we got to see for Stefan Diggs, him go to the Bills and be in this great situation and have that monster year but that possibly that is sort of more the exception to the rule. And we're not really understanding that more and more bad seasons with these bad quarterbacks and bad offenses are just going to eventually cause people to lose interest. Obviously, DJ Moore has done this for a couple of years and he still stayed pretty valuable, but not trading him now runs the risk of him having another pretty bad year that doesn't help you in the short term and also sees his value continue to fall as he continues to age. I think that's a really astute point. And yet it, it can't be applied to DJ Moore. Just, 
He's too good, yeah. Sean. He's, he's too good. good. He's gonna. He's, he's gonna good. have that year. That year's coming, and you're gonna be like, well, yeah. I mean, I should have bought him the DJ more. No, I mean, you're right. Maybe though. like they, what what we need for the DJ more year to happen, and it needs to happen in the next couple of years probably, or else you're starting to talk about his late twenties. So we need Matt Rule to get fired. We need them to draft a new quarterback. We need that quarterback to be good. We need a system that's good. And then, you know, finally we'll see positives. There's a lot of things that are bad here, not just one, that that his situation sucks. It's a lot of elements of his situation suck that all need to be fixed. Or he may never have that big production. He may have the Allen Robinson thing. Is it out of the question for Baker Mayfield and the Panthers to go to their opponents before the game start and be like, could you guys crouch down when I'm getting ready to throw it? Because because Mayfield gets so many passes batted at the line. Yeah. Uh I, it would be helpful if they could do that. I mean, maybe they can pay him off. I don't know. We just need to get a few passes to DJ Moore. His week two, very disheartening. Part of the reason I wrote about the sell thing was that they threw a wide receiver screen to Robbie Anderson. They threw a wide receiver screen to Shai Smith. They're not even getting those touches into DJ Moore's hands, which is just went terribly for the team. Shai Smith got two yards. Robbie Anderson fumbled. Like, those are not yak players. DJ Moore is... Do you assume that the the theory there is that you got to manufacture touches for those guys because they can't really get open? Whereas you're sort of assuming that DJ Moore is going to get his 10 targets. But this goes back to my, my point about McCaffrey's usage in week one. Scheme targets and touches to peripheral players after you've already gotten your main guys at least the number of touches that they can handle just in the don't first half. Even scheme targets and touches to your peripheral players. Look at what Miami did. Like they just threw the ball to Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle every oh, single Oh, you're time. allowed to do that? That no one else on their team caught more than four passes and they had like 450 passing yards. I think Mike Kosicki's four for 41 line was their third best receiving line on the team in a game where they had 450 passing yards. I mean, it, that's the most insane thing. They only had two more guys catch more than two passes. One of them was Raheem Mostert. It was Gesicki and Mostert. I mean, Three more guys have more than 10 yards. They had uh, Alec Ingold. Their fullback had 15 yards. Mostert had 28. Gasicki had 41. And then Waddle had 171 and Tyreek had 190. And they combined for 32 targets and 22 catches. Just do that. Why are you not doing that, Carolina? What What are you doing? Mike Gasicki begs to differ and would like some more targets. On his touchdown, I think they put up a 50-inch vertical. I mean, have you have you seen a tight end levitate? We don't need like to do that? a Mike Sicky thing now. You already did a Nelson Aguilar thing. We're talking. <laughs> We're talking about good players, Sean. Then I have DJ Moore at wide receiver twenty-seven, DK Metcalf at wide receiver thirty-three. These updated dynasty rankings. Now, obviously, I think the other drafters would make some changes to the way that they pick some of these players as well. But to give a feel for where these guys were going, DK Metcalf was wide receiver 11. DJ Moore was wide receiver 12 this offseason in Dynasty. Traylon Burks I have at wide receiver 17. That's actually dropping him a little bit in my rankings. He was going at wide receiver 23. I know I didn't ask you to prepare this before the show. It's a little bit... Um, uh, so I don't need precise things. I'm not asking you to do that, but does that seem to be in the range that you would be for some of these guys? I think that's right. And I think to your sort of leading question earlier, I would take Burks over more. If you could trade DJ more for Traylon Burks straight up right now, you you should do that. 
to, to the especially because of, of your point about the article you're writing, which sounds amazing. I'm excited to read about that class of player, I think is very accurate. There's the risk that they just aren't great ever, basically. But also, like, Traylon Burke should have already been in that range because we love these rookie first-round picks that have great profiles. I mean, and probably already was. You said you you had him higher because you dropped Traylon Burks a little bit. But going into the season, you had DJ Moore around wide receiver 12, you said? For Moore, I had him below ADP, above, below ADP. quite a bit above where he is now. But move him from 15 to 27. You had him below ADP because you have all the rookies at, like, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And 13. I do. And the reason that you have there is that you can get out of them if you miss, but if they hit like they have, then you're sitting on guys where, I mean, this idea of playing the players and then moving them at peak or what people think about as peak is so important. Now with Drake London and Garrett Wilson, you can play them for four years, four years, and then move them at still an astronomical price. Guys who are 25, 26, you can't do that because the price that you get after you've played them for those years is not the same. And these guys who have the bad quarterbacks, you don't even get the short-term production necessarily. The other point I was kind of making to you or the case I was making, and I was interested in your feedback, is that I think fantasy managers are playing this the wrong way in redraft versus dynasty because in dynasty, people are willing to still take the risk because they know the talent is there. And they're thinking, if I miss now, I get the value still in the future. But it should be the opposite, where you're looking at it in redraft, and we're often wrong about players, right? Carson Wentz, Jared Goff, you could throw in Tua, perhaps, depending on where people are on him, playing better than people expected, or at least well enough that their receivers can score points. Geno actually played all right in the first game. There still might be a case to be made if the Seahawks can get in games where they don't run like 25 total plays that maybe Metcalf can perform as well, but you draft these guys at a big discount to their talent in redraft. And if the community is wrong, then you benefit in a big way. And if you are wrong, then you didn't pay the price in the first place. And your miss is contained to that season. Whereas in Dynasty, you feel like, well, I have outs in the future, but your miss isn't contained. It goes on into the future, and the trade value loss is significant. Because even if the the perception of the talent stays fairly high, players coming off of bad seasons lose a lot of trade value value. as they get older as well. So what you're saying is, it's so funny because we always say in redraft to have a little bit more of a dynasty mindset, but in dynasty, you want to have a little bit more of a redraft mindset in the sense that you are predicting things, value changes based on one season, basically. Um, and listeners who remember our, our dynasty team together, the team with all the Moors, DJ Moore, Sky Moore, Rondell Moore, Elijah Moore. I mean, I, I think this is all pretense for the fact that we're no, no longer going to have all the more, Sean, because it sounds like we're going to be moving DJ Moore at some point. Our first offer out was, was pretty quickly rejected. but It was it was rejected. But we also moved a guy in Cole Komet. And we haven't broke down everything we did, I don't think, but we were cutting down to 20 on FFPC before the season started. We had like 40 players. You had to cut guys, cut, cut down guys uh, or, or cut them. And, and we had so many that were keepable. Cole Komet, we ended up trading for just a third and a fourth, which we didn't love in tight end premium, but we had acquired Mike Kosicki in another deal, and we still had Gerald Everett and Pat Fryermuth, and we had all these tight ends. We, we weren't going to be able to do anything with all of them. 
Komet is a great example of a guy who two weeks in has lost value. And that's because the bears look so bad and are not throwing the ball and are doing things so terrible that he didn't have any catches in week two. And people are very down on him, even though he's young and there's a lot of optimism and we like him as a player long-term having that sort of redraft mindset, probably part of the reason you suggested trading him. I, I wasn't as thrilled is that if he has a really bad year this year, and you're now two years into his career and he hasn't really done a whole lot. And it looked like he was going to have a bad year because we weren't excited about the Bears passing game necessarily coming in. And so that is uh, even that's even for a younger player. But it's this idea that having a little bit of a redraft mindset in Dynasty to trade the guy where he has a lot of value and people are saying, oh, well, he's young. I got a lot of years ahead of me. Yeah, he's still going to be young a year from now, but he's going to lose value if this year doesn't go well. I don't know. I think that's really interesting. And to update the, the listeners on a few other moves, we traded Debo Samuel as well, who might in some ways fit into this discussion, but you talked about playing and trading. We got a lot of production out of Samuel last year. We traded him for a first and a second next year. We now have another war chest of picks. And I mean, we cut down, we still have a lot of really good receivers on top of all those moors. We have Garrett Wilson and Drake London on this team. So there's a lot of paths for this off, you know, this team, we have Saquon Barkley on it too. We have Kyler Murray. It's a super flex. I mean, there's a lot of very optimistic and positive things. I wasn't as thrilled even about trading Debo, I think, at the time. But you, this is essentially the point you were making to me in the preseason during the cutdowns for this roster, and I see it a lot better now a couple weeks in. Obviously, now you get a couple weeks and Debo doesn't have great games and Cole Clement doesn't have great games. I think Debo's going to be fine. He's going to have a good year. But trading these guys at peak value and that kind of concept, and then London and Garrett Wilson gaining so much value, right? We're going to start them this week on that team. That team's 2-0. and It's leading its league in, in scoring, I think, or it's it's up there. I don't think it's leading it. but We're tied for the lead in victory points, which is the sort of key element for the RV Treflex. Yeah, over sorry. We're, we're not leading in scoring. We're in fourth, but we're about, you know, we're, we're within shouting distance. But we're tied for victory points, as you said. Two good weeks so far. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a really interesting discussion. And I think you're articulating it particularly well especially with these guys that have a lot of value and might not be in great situations in redraft and then might be a year or two older trading for them when they have peak value or have perceived peak value because they're still pretty young and people are saying oh i'm going to get three four years out of them but one of those years or the very short term and it might be all three is in a bad situation like dj Moore right now does not look like he's in a great situation and then might have multiple more years of bad situations that's been the unfortunate thing with dj Moore. So I've been saying this for three years. They got to figure it out at some point, right? But they're not figuring it out. And and he's a great example. Two years ago, if you did this, because he wasn't in a great situation, the situation hasn't gotten better. And it doesn't look like it's getting better. I mean, they have to fire Matt Rule in season and then hire a good coach. And then and then they got to get a quarterback in place. It all, a lot has to go right. Disappointing. Yeah, it is. It is disappointing. To get we never did talk about Kyle Pitts. So, Sorry, go ahead. I just was saying he did get a touchdown, so at least there was a tiny yeah, silver. The other thing that I wanted to, I wanted to gripe about with him, he got one catch in the first half, and they were doing all this other crap, and then they come out in the third quarter, they throw down field to him on the first play of the second half. So they obviously decided they needed to get the ball into the hands of DJ Moore. He makes a great catch on a poor throw behind him. He has to rotate. He's looking over his right shoulder. He has to rotate back over his left shoulder. Looks kind of like a back shoulder catch. Didn't need to be a back shoulder catch. Makes a great play. Gains like 25, 30 yards. 
two one play later, I think Baker had a nice scramble after that. He gets open in the end zone. They hit him for a TD. Three play touchdown drive. Their best drive of the year. The only drive they've had that's looked like that because they threw to DJ Moore on two of their three plays. He didn't catch a pass the rest of the game. They checked that box off. That's the first drive of the second half. You don't throw to him the rest of the game? Checked it off. We accomplished that objective for the game. I mean, how do you come out of the half and have that as a focus and then not? And it works. So I'm, I'm getting from you that you don't feel like the Dolphins would have finished their comeback if they had checked the Jalen Waddle box and the Tyreek Hill box after they caught their first touchdown. And then started throwing to Trent Shurfield, wide receiver screens to Trent Shurfield. And then at the same time, you got to get you know pretty annoyed at Baker Mayfield. I, I don't know what his deal is, but he seems to be intent on throwing to players that are not his best options. Like he he seems to not understand that like there's like. It's, it's almost like he thinks he has to do it all himself because there's players on the other side that will make plays for you. You have to understand the guys that can go out and win for you. Baker Mayfield seemed to get to Shy Smith and his progressions way too quick on way too many plays. And he just like loves throwing to Shy Smith in these like contested catches situations. He only had like six targets, but every single time they're throwing for a key third down, it's to Shy Smith. He caught one pass out of those six targets because he's not good. He's a replacement level player. And I think that that is on him, but also on the play calling. It's got to get better. One of the plays that we saw that worked really well for the Jacksonville Jaguars was a play where Christian Kirk lined up in the backfield and then runs a legit route from that spot, scores a touchdown. That's the type of thing that you can do with Christian McCaffrey that the Carolina Panthers have shown a complete lack of interest in through two games. If CMC is going to hit the point totals that we think he can hit, and the Panthers are going to be competitive the rest of the season, that also has to be a big point of emphasis. And what's funny is when CMC got hurt last year, I was so excited in stealing signals because they, they did that with DJ Moore a little bit. They lined him up in the backfield and did, and did that kind of stuff. I was so excited to see his usage be more diverse. I remember writing all about it. And then eventually they fired Joe Brady. It's like, I mean, Matt. Was, did that turn out to be the, the solution to their problem? That was the solution to all their problems, firing Joe Brady, probably the guy who brought that in and actually had some ideas. And Matt Rule's over here going, no, nah, I want to throw the ball to Shai Smith or whoever. We need to get some more interviews with Robbie Anderson about did you talk? he's willing to uh, play with Baker Mayfield because – We do. I, I didn't get a fun. chance to hear the Sunday OT show. You're doing the great recaps with Colm Kelly every week over on Word of His Overtime. I didn't get a chance to listen to it yet this week. Because I'm writing stealing signals all day Monday and Tuesday. Did you talk about the Panthers' decision to punt on fourth and fifteen with two minutes left because they had their timeouts? They're down three. I mean, so I wrote about it in stealing signals. Baker Mayfield third and six gets a free rusher, stands completely flat-footed, and just takes the hit basically, just frozen in fear almost. He didn't have a ton of time to react, but he's looking right at the guy. And you're in four down territory. I think it was a third down mentality where he's like, I got to break this tackle. And, you know, it's third down, live or die here. So it takes a nine yard loss. That's a bad play because you can throw that ball away. You're in four down territory. There's like two minutes and 15 seconds left. They're down three points. They're around midfield. They need a first down, maybe two more to kick a game tying field goal. This is where you're at. You're, you're The game's on the line. Takes that sack. They go to fourth and 15. And then Matt Rule makes a decision to punt because they have a two minute warning and three timeouts. But when you punt with 205 left or whatever, like, you have to get a three and out. And my argument is, I mean, even if you turn over on downs going for that fourth and 15, you still got to get a three and out. And then what? They kick a long field goal. They might not even try that long of a field goal. Regardless, if the Giants get a first, like, field position doesn't matter. If the Giants get a first down, this game's over, right? You have two minutes to play with. You're losing at the time. It's not tied. 
they decided to punt on fourth and 15. So the, the, the bad sack on third down, the punt on fourth down, just amazing pairing of QB and, and coach who don't understand situational football, but predictably they did not get the ball back. What, how do you choose? I, I don't even care if it's fourth and 15. You should have had a fourth and six, but I don't even care if it's fourth and 15. How do you choose to punt the ball with two minutes left down three at your own 35? Again, if you get turnover on downs there, and even if the Giants say you get the three and out and they make a 50-yard field goal, you're still going to get the ball back. It's the same idea as the punt that you're you're trying to get one more possession because you got your three and out in. Now you're down six at that point, right? Like you still have a chance to win the game in that scenario if you get the three and out after going forward on fourth and not converting. What you can't do is punt with two minutes left. Right. Anyway, did you have a chance to, to share your opinions for the listeners on that on Sunday? <laughs> the Panthers game was not top of our list to cover. Yeah. On that one. It, uh, that I've was the worst them. decision I saw of the week, Sean. That was terrible. Yeah. There were some interesting ones. I, we won't go into it here because we do have to talk about Kyle Pitts, but I actually thought that there were some interesting calls in that Colts game as well. But yes, we're at the hour mark. <laughs> And Kyle Pitts, he was one of my favorite players for 2022. The first non-quarterback drafted in last year's class has the first 1,000-yard tight end receiving season of a player this century, rookie tight end, has not yet turned 22, One of the parts of my thesis that I think was not shared by most people, but I think is very defensible after watching two weeks is that he was actually going to get a pretty significant quarterback upgrade. You have Drake London arriving to make it much more difficult for opposing defensive coordinators to simply say, we're going to play these gimmick defenses and stop Kyle Pitts. The Atlanta Falcons have looked pretty good through two weeks, but Kyle Pitts has not been a part of that. That's been offset by, and by offset, it's created a stark contrast with what we saw from Travis Kelsey in week one and what we saw with Mark Andrews in week two. I've put out my new rest of season tight end rankings. I actually moved Mark Andrews up to number one. He was the player I had at number three preseason. Kelsey at two, Kyle Pitts at three, but I've maintained Pitts in the top tier with those guys. And if we were to draft again today, I would make only minimal changes to the draft plan with Kyle Pitts. Is that something that is still justifiable now that we've seen two weeks? Yeah, and it's, there. I mean, everything you said is true. There's still this element of, Everything's going to move in Kyle Pitts' favor. He had two down games. I wrote a little bit in Stealing Signals about there's some sequencing element here where if a player has two down games in week seven or eight and you've already seen it for six weeks, you're not panicking. When you see it in week one and two, you're panicking. He had eight games of 50 or fewer yards last year. That's it. And that's where I was going to go. I, it's so funny. We thought of it the same way. I, I wrote it as he had six games of 35 or fewer in Stealing Signals. But he had six games of 35 or fewer yards. He had those down games, still had a thousand yard season. He was one of three uh, tight ends who had a thousand yards last year. Only four had more than 830. There weren't a lot of other dudes knocking on the door there. I think Kittle was the only other one. You had Kelsey and Andrews up there over a thousand with him. Kittle in his partial season had like 900 or something. 
a guy who's able to do a thousand yards at tight end is just immediately different, right? We also part of our thesis, Sean, was the tight end position was not good this year. We have 10 players who have scored 20 PPR points through two games at this position. Average 10 per game. We're not asking a lot here. 10. That's all. There's only four that have averaged 12.5, meaning they scored 25 PPR points per game through two games. Gerald Everett, our boy, is in that group. Kelsey and Andrews are the only ones who have scored really anything that exciting at the position. It's wide open for Pitts as soon as he has a big game to just jump up the tight end leaderboard. He could be in the top five in two games if he has two solid games because no one else is doing anything. O.J. Howard is a tight end 11. He has three targets on the season. He caught two touchdowns. Literally is a low-end tight end one right now. Pitts, uh, the the big – so you have all those elements that like of, of the argument that are working in Pitts' favor still. He's still at a, an advantage at tight end. But the people that want to like bench him for I you know I heard bench him for Evan Ingram or I saw a tweet on Twitter. You so back to the sequencing point where you have bad games. They happen multiple ways at wide receiver or at tight end, but he's basically a wide receiver. It's a volatile position. He ties for the team lead with seven targets in week one, and he only catches two passes. Inefficiency that happens right next week. He only sees three targets. He did have a deep shot that was a defensive pass interference. Doesn't go on. It was a fourth target. But that actually tied for second on the team, his three targets. And, and really, if you count the penalty, he was second on the team. The big reason he wasn't super involved in this game was Drake London had a 48% target share. Because Drake London is good, which is ultimately a positive for Pitts. London's not going to have a 48% target share on the season or next week or any other time. So like, it's not like they're using... Alameda Zacchaeus or something, right? Like the other really good player in the offense had a good game. It was a London week. That's going to happen. We talked about this in draft season. It could be either of them in a lower volume passing game. So he he had variance in, in two bad ways. He got seven targets, not amazing, but enough and, and had uh, bad efficiency. And then he had the type of variance where the targets just don't come to him. And, and I know I talk about targets being earned. They are, but you're going to have some games with lower targets sometimes. People have talked about his pass block snaps. And so in terms of like benching him while it's not working out, he had seven pass block snaps in week one. That actually went down to three in week two. So he's only had 10 pass blocking snaps through two games. Uh, his routes run jumped to 88% of, of uh, dropbacks last week. He was in line just 14 of 57 snaps in week two, which was a huge improvement over week one. He was actually in line a little more than we want to see in week one. So actually week two, when you look at where they were aligning him and how much they're running him in routes, it was all improvements. It was actually very positive. You add in all of that stuff into the mix. You say, oh, the tight end position is terrible. There's like five guys that can put up 20 points in a game. And Kyle Pitts, very clearly one of them. You look at the fact that he's not giving up targets to nobody. He's giving up targets to a young receiver who's doing really well. And it's going to draw more defensive attention and then help Pitts in that way. Last week, at least. And then you also look at the fact that he's being used the way that we want. There's way too much focus on this pass block stuff. Again, three times in week two. No, that, that's not actually a conversation, that pass block thing. It's that's a like it's a big noise, you know, signal and noise stuff that people are talking. I'm seeing that on Twitter a lot. You know, I know you're not on Twitter a lot, but I'm seeing a lot of this about Pitts' pass blocking more than we want to. Week one, it was a little bit of a note, but not a big one that he was in line a little too much. He pass blocked a little more than last year. That wasn't a concern in week two. There's nothing to worry about here. There's nothing to worry about. Yeah, I think that if you appear to be wrong after two weeks 
and or the teams have gotten off to a slow start, the fantasy teams, then a lot of this is going to sound purely like justification. But I mean, it just it isn't. And I think that I wouldn't be surprised if we get to the end of the season and we think this actually turned out to be very positive. You mentioned the sequencing. Everybody notices it if it happens in the first two weeks. And if you were high on pits, it's not ideal for you because people will notice that you were high on him and he didn't do well. But the other thing that happens is that Arthur Smith has taken an unbelievable beating for this. If this happens in week seven and eight, it's not a huge deal. And the Falcons don't have to change what they're doing because they've lost these two games. And Arthur Smith has taken this massive beating. Kyle Pitts now has to be such a focal point that you're talking about the potential. And again, it's potential. We don't know how the season's going to turn out, but the potential for an epic year that's driven by what happened in the first two weeks. And one of the things you say, well, you know, go out there and, and send out all these buy low offers for Kyle Pitts, but there's almost no point to it because no one who actually wanted Kyle Pitts in the first place is going to sell him to you after two down games. And the other reason for that is just like, how do you even structure that offer? Because the other person's going to want a tight end back and there's no tight end that can score points that you could send them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. But I will say in some casual leagues, I'm seeing people who drafted Pitts who are down on him. They're mad that they drafted Kyle Pitts. I, I saw some tweet from a big account that was like, who's the one player that you're most concerned about on your team? And like half the replies were Kyle Pitts. So people who have Kyle Pitts in these casual leagues, if you're a listener, you're in a home league, go send an offer for Pitts. Maybe you don't need to send a tight end. Maybe that person is that upset because they're, there seem to be some. It's not just a straw man, but it, it kind of does feel a little bit like a straw man. But Sean, that's another point that I that I hit on in in signals that I, I just love it. I think we're thinking through this the exact same way. But I wrote that exact same thing that it was the, the sort of a uh, an, a little anti fragile point I wrote where um, there's other reasons to be. I'm looking at it right now. There's other reasons to be wary of writing off pits, including the media already asking Arthur Smith post game why they weren't using their thousand yard tight end who was a top five pick last year. This kind of thing where outside pressure starts to mount to the degree that, as silly as it sounds, it does influence things. It's one of those little anti-fragile points where everything will move in the direction of a guy like Pitts. And there's basically only one way he continues to fail, which is if he's really bad all of a sudden. That's the only thing that I can come up with because nothing else in his data suggests that there's any concern. But I'm right there with you with the Arthur Smith point. Like he had to answer questions. He's going to continue to have to answer questions. And that actually, like... I love the way you framed it. You took it a step further where this might actually lead to way too much volume in a, like in a bad way for their team where he's, you see coaches respond to this. Having done when you this hear long, the guy pulling out the, this isn't fantasy football remark, you know that, I mean, he's that it's affecting him emotionally. Yeah. I mean, cause that's not something that, I mean, it's, it's not a good answer. We're not beating him up for the answer. It's a very human answer, but I mean, you know that it's gotten to him when you're hearing that kind of response. Yeah. He's not giving you the straight face like, you know, we'll address this or whatever. Like he's he's getting emotional about it. He's saying something that he knows he's going to get lambasted for and that that quote is going to be all over the place. Or he doesn't necessarily know it in the moment. He's being emotional and he probably regrets it immediately. I shouldn't have brought up fantasy football. I'm going to get smashed for that. But you're right. I mean, like, there's – Again, I, I think what you said is true that the, most of the people in, in like dynasty formats, especially that have Kyle Pitts are not concerned and you're probably not going to be able to trade for him. But 
seeing some of the people on Twitter comment that have him about how concerned they are and how they're going to start Evan Ingram over him and these things, if he's available to that type of degree at all in any league, then he's like the greatest by low of all time, just because of two bad games. I mean, it's just at a position where he can be such a difference maker and no one else can. I mean, this is just, this could be like the the biggest opportunity that we're granted in home leagues. I mean, I I'm not granted it because he's in on all my home league teams. But anyone else who <laughs> is listening and you're in more casual leagues, like this is the biggest opportunity you've been granted. I'm not saying he's definitely going to be as good as Kelsey and Andrews the rest of the year. I am saying he's definitely one of only a few guys that can be anywhere close. And there's not a lot of, like you said, other tight ends that can even score points. And and that's been very true through two weeks. So every dynamic, the, the positional dynamic, the rest of the league around him at the, at the position he plays, every dynamic about his profile, all of this elements were like, when you're Kyle Pitts, everything moves in your favor. This is such a story because we had such high hopes for a player this good. When he has two bad games like this, people get emotional. They overreact sometimes. I mean, it's it's just, it's it's bonkers. It's absolutely bonkers that we're sitting here talking about, you know, whether he's a bust. I had somebody tell me that he's a bust. And it's like, you, he's played two games. You mentioned the pass interference. That was a play where I, that ball I don't think was thrown particularly well. Probably actually wouldn't have played out. But the guy grabs him because he's beaten. And if it's a good throw and he's not grabbed, then you're talking about a long touchdown. I, I do have to say that, I mean, I did change the rankings to have Kelsey and Andrews above him because I think that what we saw in week two with the receivers from the Chiefs, there's now, I think, increasing concern that maybe it'll have to flow through him more than I was thinking. I mean, the flip side of that is that they also Increasing concern down. for you. Maybe if you would have listened to your co-host. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> The other thing is that the teams where I lucked into slash because of structural drafting have Mark Andrews in main events, I'm very excited about that because one of the things you and I talked about is that you want to kind of be betting against very mildly betting against at the, at the prices, because I mean, when you're making a bet against, the community or a bet against what the team maybe wants to do at the one, two turn. That's very different than betting against it with Albert O and Noah Fant, you know, in a spot where you're like, we're just going to pick up somebody else in free agency the following week anyway. But the Ravens are right back to where we looked last season and they can't run the ball. It's one of these things too, where it's, it's almost a little bit of a play off of the JK Dobbins play where if he's not healthy, then, you know, they're not going to be able to run the ball. And for the first couple of weeks, that at least has been the case. And Mark Andrews, the talent there, and even with Bateman having the two long scores and looking like somebody who actually should be more involved. You talk about uh, DJ Moore and the score and then not getting more involved. I think with the the Ravens, you have that huge lead and you're not expecting to blow some three touchdown lead to the Miami Dolphins. But Bateman should have been more involved after what he did really in both of those games. But Mark Andrews, a superstar in an explosive offense where the quarterback is unstoppable in a variety of ways. I did move Mark Andrews above Travis Kelsey, and that's not what I had preseason there either. I did have Kelsey above Andrews. 
Yeah, and I think that's the right call. That was what we talked about a little bit in the offseason too. When I still had Pitts early on, ranked behind Andrews, it was that I, I it was mostly ADP related, but I didn't want to make sure to not get any Andrews because you could see this. And then we talked late in the offseason about Bateman that they were going to throw early in the year with Dobbins not looking healthy, and towards you know the end of August, getting more excited about having Bateman in there. I do think there is, you know, or, or at least to the extent that my my take on Bateman was changing late. It seemed likely they would throw a lot early because it didn't, I mean, they didn't have any talent at running back. And that's what they did last year when they didn't have any talent at running back. I do think there is some concern. Again, this was my preseason take. So I'm, I'm not I, like what's happened early is sort of confirmed my prior concern, if you will, for the Andrews or Bateman or the, the pass volume that one Dobbins is back. And if he ever does get healthy, like you said, it's a little play off of that. But if he does get healthy, that they do get back to running the ball, which I, I think they, want to be able to do into into December and, and into those months. And so it might be, I mean, it's been very exciting for Mark Andrews so far, but it might be something that this is the, the peak of the season for them in terms of their pass production. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's right to have pits behind those two guys now. And I like the order you have it. I like Andrews ahead of Kelsey, even, even though Kelsey's start has been really positive for him. Maybe I don't like that. But they're, they're, it's Kelsey and Andrews, one, two, and then Pitts is a little bit behind. But I would definitely have Pitts third, and I'm basically not putting anyone else in a tier with Pitts even. It's still a big tier down to Darren Waller, even though Waller has some vaguely encouraging things. But he can't have the same profile that he had in his two big seasons with Devontae Adams there and then Hunter Renfro taking some of the underneath targets. Adams is a guy I wanted to mention as we were talking about the sequencing stuff. Showed in week one what he can do, then has the week two where he only gets a few targets, gets the easy touchdown, and I'm not really concerned about him at all. But it, I, I, what I wrote, I think, in Signals or somewhere I said on some show or something, is if Adams would have done that in week one, I would have confirmed all my priors and I would have thought I was a genius and because I was concerned about Adams in the offseason. And I would have been saying, look how right I was about Devontae Adams. He's not going to have the same target share and all these things uh, with the Raiders. So even I am a, a huge victim of this because I didn't care about Devonta Adams week two. I still think he's should be in the top five receivers the rest of the season based on what we saw week one. It, I, week one confirmed for me that I was wrong, but because of the sequences, the sequencing of that, we flipped those two things. I'm probably sitting here telling you after week one, Sean, that you were wrong on Adams and I'm so smart. And then week two would have happened and I would look really, really dumb. So I'm glad that Adams week one and two went in the order that it did. But again, Adams can even have a game like that is my point. Pitts had two of them. And I'm not saying he's Adams, but like those two games don't really change the thing on Pitts. The other, the other point on Pitts, if he has that preseason 50-yard catch that spiked his ADP in either of the first two games, no one's worried about him. Just one play like that would have probably changed the level of concern. I think people are worried, but not to this degree. And you said the deep ball, he had one on the route against the Rams. The deep ball in the preseason, I mean, we've now seen that a couple different times from them. They're willing to line him up outside and throw him 30, 40 yard passes downfield, like a X wide receiver, like a Cortland Sutton or a Mike Williams. That's how they're treating Kyle Pitts in their offense. We've seen that now. No other tight end gets that, that type of volume. And on both plays, you said it with the Rams play. It was also true in the preseason. Oh, an accurately thrown ball is a 70 yard touchdown on both plays. And that's, you know, maybe a mild concern on Mariota or whatever, but, I think we're going to see that a couple of times this year. I think we're going to see 60-yard touchdowns to Kyle Pitts because he's burning guys on the outside. He did it in the preseason. He did it in that Rams game. And Mariota's going to finally put one on target. We're going to see a long TD. I mean, it's just 
And he had you go into matchup stuff. These first two weeks weren't necessarily great tight end matchups. Now he's getting the Seahawks in week three who have been bad against the tight end. He doesn't really play tight end, but I mean, go trade for him. <laughs> you might have 200 yards in week three. That would be awesome. I think a 1,300-yard season is definitely not out of the equation, especially now that we are in a 17-game schedule. Ben, this has been so much fun. We are at almost an hour 20, so we're going to let you guys go today. We'll be back with another show for you on Saturday. Looking forward to a week three, which hopefully will feature the excitement from the first wave of games, not feature those injuries in the second wave. But whatever happens it's going to be an NFL Sunday, so we're going to enjoy it. I'm Sean Siegel. With me, as always, is Ben Gretsch, and you can follow at Yards Per Gretsch. Make sure you get signed up for Stealing Signals at bengretsch.substack.com. Sign up for Stealing Lines. Join us over at Rotoviz. Subscribe to the feed. Leave us a rating interview. We love you guys. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.